Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. This is the word of the Lord from John 4, 1 through 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it? Himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks this water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in the truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks." God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. It's Larry Community Church. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at TCC. It's a joy and a gift to be able to be here with you all We're continuing in our series that we're calling Wellness. We're looking at a handful of different topics that everyone, Christian or not, wrestles with in their day-to-day lives and how the Bible addresses those wrestlings. And today, we're looking at themes like forgiveness, shame, and guilt. There seem to be an increasingly large number of resources available to us all on how to deal with things like shame. The answer that we hear is often something along the lines of expressing ourselves more fully, embracing who we are, no matter the choices that we make, etc. Offer yourself forgiveness. That's ultimately all that matters, we are told. But the Bible says something different. Our passage, a famous passage that is found in John chapter 4, shows us just how different Christianity's approach to forgiveness is and the approach of secular culture. But it will also challenge us in a unique way. What it says is that there is no barrier that is too great for God, but that there is also only one way to God. 
There's no barrier too great for God, but there is only one way to God. Now, if you know me, you know that I love playing golf. That's why I became a pastor, so that I'd only have to work two hours a week on Sundays, and then I could work on my short game the other six days. In many respects, golf is probably an enormous waste of not only time, but money and resources. Uh, But I once read an article in Golf Digest that Billy Graham, who was an avid golfer, he said, For me, a golf course is an island of peace in a world often full of confusion and turmoil. So now I just rationalize my habit by telling myself that the greatest evangelist of the 20th century wants me to do this. I love golf for many reasons, but one of the most significant is the intimate time you get to spend with the people in your group. Some of the best conversations I've ever had have been on the golf course. They say that golf reveals someone's true character, and I really like people's true character. I like to know how people tick and why they tick the way they do. Now, a couple months ago, I had the opportunity to play in a three-day tournament with a family member, and over dinner one evening, we had a, a candid conversation about this individual's upbringing in the church. Story after story came out about bad experiences that this individual had with clergy leaders when they were growing up. Hypocrisy, illogical mandates, all leading to a lot of emotional and psychological scars that are now over 50 years old. And I said, you know, it seems like these experiences had a severe impact on your relationship with religion of any kind. They did, was the reply. I said, do you think those scars act as a barrier between you and any form of organized religion now? And this individual looked me dead in the eyes and said, absolutely. I'm pretty sure he's not alone. Maybe you have past traumas, pain, experiences, and relationships that act as barriers between you and church. It's certainly not a rare experience to meet someone who had such a horrible experience in church that they completely turned their back on the Christian faith entirely. And maybe you too have reservations about any form of organized religion because of the hypocrisy that you've heard between the content preached from the pulpit on a Sunday and the way that it's lived out Monday to Saturday. Gandhi famously said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. While painful to hear, sadly, barriers abound in the church. And if you've come up on barriers that impact your ability to believe in the miraculous nature of the gospel, please know that you're not alone. I'm glad you're here. But let's take church out of the equation for a minute. When we look around, we see barriers everywhere. Some are simple, like a locked trunk or a front door to a house. Others supposedly keep us safe, like a fence or a gate. Some are symbolic, like train tracks or a freeway that literally and figuratively divides a city. Some are invisible but seem impossible to break, like the glass ceiling for women in corporate America or the generational cycle of poverty in rural and urban neighborhoods alike. Barriers to relationship, to community, along the lines of language, culture, ethnicity. There are also a variety of barriers folks can have with not only the church but with God himself. How do I believe in what I can't see? 
God is real. How come bad things happen to good people? The angry, vengeful God that I seem to read about in the Old Testament sure doesn't seem to match up with the loving and gracious God in the New. So he must not actually exist at all. This list can be extensive. As we look around, barriers abound. Our text included. Our passage in John 4 revolves around an interaction between Jesus and whom the gospel writer John simply calls the Samaritan woman. It's the middle of the day, it's probably hot, and Jesus sits down by a well. Now, the Samaritan woman comes up to the well and he asks her for a drink of water. And she replies in verse 9, she says, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Now, the history is really interesting here. First and Second Kings tells us that several hundred years earlier, the kingdom of Israel had its capital in Samaria, but in 722 BC, the Israelites were defeated by the Assyrians. The Assyrians deported many Israelites back to Assyria and repopulated Israel with foreigners who intermarried with the remaining Israelites. Now, the result were the Samaritans, whom Jews regarded as half-breeds. Jews regarded the Samaritans as ceremonially unclean simply because of their lineage. To even interact with this group of people would mean that you were essentially sinning. That's intense. Now on the flip side, Samaritans rejected much of the Old Testament, much of the Hebrew Bible, the sacred, holy book of the Jewish people. Needless to say, the groups didn't get along very well at all. Jews essentially viewed the Samaritans as untouchables. Not only that, but, but Jewish religious leaders hardly ever spoke with women in public, period. And not only that, but the fact that this woman is getting water in the middle of the day likely means that she's an outcast of a people group that is already made up of outcasts. We got a few different barriers going on in our text right away, don't we? So it's understandable that this woman is so surprised that Jesus is interacting with her at all, let alone asking to use her cup for a drink of water. And as they talk, Jesus tells her about living water. She asks for some. And then verses 16 to 18 say, He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Blown away, she quickly tries to change course, but the point has been made. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. She's an adulterer. Barrier, barrier, barrier. All right, we might say that, well, there can't possibly be any more, right? Well, of course there are. Frazzled, embarrassed, and ashamed, the woman tries to change the subject, and she asks a question about the proper place to worship. Is it Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem? The Samaritans had erected a temple on Mount Gerizim, replacing Jerusalem as their spiritual center, and get this. This is crazy. In 128 or 127 BC, John Hyrcanus, the Jewish high priest in Judea, decides to destroy the Samaritan temple because Jews believed God could only be properly worshipped in Jerusalem. 
This is some Hatfield and McCoy's type of stuff. There is some seriously, seriously bad blood here. And how does Jesus respond to it all? Verse 21 and then verses 23 and 24 say, Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. Worship will be worship, Jesus says. And then He drops the mic. This is what verses 25 and 26 say. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. See, Christianity states that the barrier between us and God, the barrier between us and true eternal life, was so great that only God himself could destroy it. And here he is. To claim to be the the Messiah, the promised one, the deliverer of Israel, was beyond blasphemous, utterly and completely egregious. The Messiah was so revered, so prophesied about, so hoped for, that anyone who actually claimed to be the Messiah would have been ridiculed, would have been a source of anger, of frustration, maybe even hatred. No one in their right mind would claim to be the Messiah. That's exactly what Jesus does. Messiah was the promised deliverer of the Jewish people. He was their leader, their savior. And if what he says is true, then when Jesus goes to the cross, it's not just a Jewish man going to the cross. It's the Messiah. The one prophesied about hundreds of years earlier. The chosen one. The savior of not just the Jewish people, but of the whole world. The chosen one making all things right, not through a show of strength, or power, but through humility and submission. This is utterly and completely mind-blowing. But there's more, because of course there is. See, John 1 starts like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things came into being, and without Him not one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Jesus is that word. Gospel writer John says that the word was God, and Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he's not only the Messiah, the chosen one, but he's the word. He is God himself. And notice what the Messiah, notice what God incarnate does. He draws near. Jesus draws near to this woman. Despite all the remarkable glaring barriers between them, it is God himself drawing near to this woman. Jesus blows every prejudice, judgment, and bias completely out of the water. Not race, not religion, not cultural background or gender, not even a sinful, checkered, and broken past. There's no barrier that he will not knock down. There's no barrier too great for him. 
And if God himself is willing to draw near to this woman who is lost in sin, imagine how willing he is to draw near to you. Imagine how resolutely and completely he will knock down all the barriers that you think exist between you and God. Imagine how he desires to draw near to you, yes, even you. And as you imagine, also recognize. Recognize that when Jesus claims his place as the Messiah, when he claims to be the Savior, he is instructing not only the Samaritan woman, but all of us as well, that it is through him and him alone that God draws near. For our increasingly secular nation, this is perhaps the greatest barrier of all. The claim that the only way to God is through Jesus is categorically rejected more and more as too exclusive. To bow down to someone else and not to yourself and your own desires is so antithetical to our cultural moment as to be seen as absurd. An affront to my identity and my independence. And so realize the remarkable nature of Jesus' claim. If he is the way, the truth, and the life, then there is no way, truth, or life apart from him. If no one draws near to God the Father except through him, then it is through him and through him alone that we are brought near to God. Jesus himself doesn't leave us any other options. There are no barriers too great for God, but there is only one way to God. And maybe right now you are sitting with so much shame, so much guilt, that you're shocked people don't look at you when you walk down the aisle at the grocery store. Maybe you think that you've erected so many barriers between you and God that forgiveness, that love, that freedom is an impossibility. If you're battling addiction, anger, financial hardships, if you've been carrying events, decisions you made, or things that happened to you in your past, if you think that your cultural background, your heritage, your skin color, or native language are barriers to new life in Jesus Christ, put yourself in the shoes of the Samaritan woman and realize that there is no barrier too great for God. Realize that your place in God's eyes was decided once and for all by Jesus when he died for you and for the world. All the barriers around you, all the barriers in your life, Jesus knocked those down once and for all when he took our place on the cross. But as you put yourself in her shoes, also realize the weight of Jesus' words that he is the Messiah. Through Jesus and through Jesus alone are we restored with the God who loves us, with the God who made us. Through Jesus and through Jesus alone are the barriers in your path destroyed. Believe in him and believe in him alone. Believe in his willingness to meet you at the well of your life and drink his living water. Because TCC, there is no barrier too great for God, but there is only one way to God. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.